Welcome to Extremely from the ADL Center on Extremism. I'm Oren Siegel. And I'm Jessica Reeves. We are recording this episode two weeks after the massacre in Israel by Hamas terrorists, which killed 1,400 people, where men, women, and children were taken hostage. And that has resulted in a war against Hamas that has only just begun. While there's a lot to unpack and a lot still going on, including processing what has happened for many of us. We're going to pull out a few of the strands that we're focused on in the wake of those attacks here at the Center on Extremism. By the time this podcast airs, things will certainly have evolved and changed, but this is a snapshot in time. Today, we're going to discuss the proliferation of disinformation we're tracking about the war, the spikes in anti-Semitic incidents over the past few weeks, We'll speak to our colleague, who's our anti-Semitic incident specialist, to get her take on what she's seeing. And then we will focus on how other domestic extremists are exploiting this crisis. We'll then close with an interview with Professor Jessica Stern, another Jessica, who I spoke to about her career in this field and her experiences teaching a new generation of folks that are interested in extremism and hate. I mean, two Jessicas, the jackpot. Something that listeners will note is that this episode does contain some dark humor, and we understand that that may not appeal to everyone and may not even feel appropriate in some cases. We do want folks to know that it is a coping mechanism that we use frequently in our work. And, you know, this is how we get through our days and our jobs looking at some of the most horrible stuff imaginable. So please just keep that in mind. And here's the episode. So I think worth noting that those of us who've worked in this field for a long time have seen some really horrific things. The stories that have emerged in recent weeks, I think, have pushed us all to and maybe past our limit. All we can do at this point is hope that peace prevails eventually and that the violence against all parties stops. Another note of caution before we get into it. The second half of this episode will contain references to rape and suicide, and we advise listeners to use their own discretion on whether they want to listen or even ask kids to leave the room or any other steps you'd like to take. So switching gears a little bit, even though we're staying on the same sort of topic, I will not shock you or probably any of our listeners when I tell you that we live in an age that is defined, at least in part, by mis- and disinformation. I mean, so you say, I don't know, should I believe that? (laughs) That's up to you, man. You know, check your sources. But our social media platforms are not equipped, as we've all witnessed, to handle this onslaught, which means essentially that we're all drowning in these false narratives. That's both exhausting and incredibly dangerous. So with that in mind, COE researchers right now are keeping track of the bad information. And there is a lot of it around the war between Israel and Hamas, which has really set off just a virtual avalanche of false narratives. A couple of false rumors were debunking. One very popular rumor insists that much of Israel is on fire. And the rumor is accompanied by a image of a wildfire that's actually happening in Argentina. I'm not a huge geography buff, but I do know that that is nowhere near Israel. So I think we can all be safe in that knowledge. You know, we've heard that the attacks were planned by Jews as a way to expedite the Great Replacement, which is a sinister plot to replace white people with non-white people. This ostensible logic goes 
if Palestinians are displaced, they'll come to the U.S. and that will further displace the white people and to some people's point, white voters even more. It's really just incredibly disheartening. We're trying to keep up with all of these narratives as best we can. But I'm curious, Oren, why do you think there's such a rush to conspiracies whenever there's a crisis or a tragedy? Right. And the examples that you gave are one of many that have so many likes and shares. So what we're trying to debunk is not even the millions that are out there, but just the ones that you know we're hearing from because it's literally getting to the point where average people are seeing it and hearing it, which is crazy. Listen, I think there are some folks that never miss an opportunity to leverage a crisis, right? So bad actors will try to put their spin on issues for the, whatever political agenda that they have. Right. I, I think some people, though, want clicks. Yeah. Like absolutely. if you're going to reward people for follows and shares and likes or whatever it is, people will make up any crazy stuff in order to beef up their stats, so to speak. It's amazing to watch on one level. It's appalling on other levels. This is another indication of just how these conspiracies and this craziness that one at one time we kind of associated with fringes, with extremism, it's all becoming incredibly mainstream. And yeah. regular people are asking us, family and friends are asking us, hey, is this true? And I mean, it's bonkers. It's beyond comprehension. Right. I mean, I think part of it, too, is people rely on like their social feeds more than they do credible news outlets, right? There's so much doubt right. as to like what is credible anymore. What are some of the items that we have debunked? Are there any other pieces of disinformation or narratives that you've seen that we've put on our website to help debunk for people who are trying to navigate through this ecosystem? You know, there was so much misinformation and disinformation around the explosion at the hospital in Gaza. And oh, you know, yeah. information is still forthcoming. But, you know, everybody online, everybody was an expert. Everybody said, oh, I can prove using this, this and this tool. This is what happened. And whatever their narrative was, they could prove it. That one was a particularly interesting one, A, because... First of all, people relied on Hamas for the news originally, right. which is just a good practice not to rely on a terrorist organization for yeah. any facts on the ground. It inflames tensions. It makes people who are already angry more angry. It makes people who are heartbroken even more heartbroken. And it's not helpful or healthy. I mean, we know that firsthand, but it's just, um, it, it's it truly is overwhelming. And the Hamas attack occurred at a time when many Jews were feeling particularly vulnerable in the United States because of already historic levels of anti-Semitic harassment and vandalism and assault that we have been documenting over the past few years. Even the FBI just released their hate crime data, which showed a 37% increase in hate crimes targeting the Jewish community. And of course, we're coming off of a wave of bomb threats and swatting. So it's been challenging and it has not gotten any better during this two weeks since the massacre on October 7th. To help us unpack this is Rachel Sass, our anti-Semitic incident specialist in the Center on Extremism. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Oren. Thanks for having me on. I'm going to jump in with our first question. Thank you for your work and thank you for everything you've been doing these last couple of weeks. I know it's been very difficult. Give us a snapshot of what you're seeing, what you're concerned about. I know that's a big question, but um, if you can just give us kind of the landscape. Since Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th, we've seen a concerning increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. 
we've documented this sort of trend before. Back in the spring of 2021, we recorded unusually high numbers of anti-Semitic incidents during Israel's conflict with Gaza. So when the attack against Israel happened just a couple of weeks ago, we were looking for similar trends. And indeed, we've noticed that. Something I'm concerned about is it's unclear right now where this conflict is going. It doesn't seem to really have an end in sight, and that could have ramifications not only for people living in that region, but also for the Jewish community in the United States and around the world. Rachel, can you talk a little bit about the types of incidents that you're seeing and maybe some that sort of stand out that are representative of the sort of spike that we're seeing? There's been quite a range of incidents that I've seen over the past couple weeks, actually. Some trends that float to the top are first, unsurprisingly, but important to note, a higher proportion of these incidents have some sort of rhetoric or themes related to Israel that we notice in them. So, for example, a common type of anti-Semitic incident that I record throughout the year is harassing phone calls that are made to synagogues. In the past couple of weeks, we've still seen harassing phone calls to synagogues. We've seen more harassing phone calls to synagogues. And we've also seen harassing phone calls to synagogues that incorporate mentions of the war in Israel and blame the Jewish community or Jewish individuals for what is going on in Israel and in Gaza. So, for example, a synagogue received a phone call saying that the Jewish community is responsible for the suffering of Palestinians. Another synagogue received a phone call from an individual who stated that they hope that Hamas continues to perpetrate violence against Jews, not only in Israel, but also in the United States. Did we also get a report of a woman being punched on the subway in New York because she was Jewish? Yes, we have recorded several violent physical assault incidents. One, the one that you mentioned, uh, an individual punched a woman. She asked why, I expect in, in shock of the moment. And the person answered, because you're Jewish. So can I just say, that's upsetting. The idea that somebody would get punched in the face and ask why, that's kind of incredible. Or was that shorthand? Like, I'm just thinking somebody got punched in the face. Be like, why did you do that? I would ask that. I would totally be like, what's your problem, man? Like, why would you do that? You wouldn't run? I don't know. Probably. I don't know. Yeah, something that I've noticed reviewing thousands of reports of anti-Semitic incidents is that people act and respond in unexpected ways. Sometimes, and I think when anti-Semitic incidents or attack is perpetrated against a person, sometimes they don't know how to respond. Sometimes they respond in fear, in anger, in confusion. So I've learned not to be surprised at the ways I see people react and also the ways I see people perpetrate acts of anti-Semitism. There are some really bizarre incidents out there. Can you tell us about any of the really bizarre ones? From the past couple of weeks, I have some examples here. I'll bring in a little bit of dark humor here and you all can edit it out if you want to. No, no, uh, this is the point. Bring on the dark humor. Yeah. One of the incidents, it was an anti-Semitic phone call voice message, I believe, to a Jewish institution. The person on the phone said, well, at least you, as in you American Jews, are colonizing Indian land, not Palestinian land. But f- you Jews anyway. That was a pretty interesting take. And Very roundabout, uh, isn't it? Yeah. By the way, one of the things I really appreciate about your work, and Jessica, just tell me to stop because I'm going to keep going. 
is that it's providing information to help people really gauge whether what they're feeling is real or not, right? Sometimes we feel like there's a lot going on, but you're kind of helping put numbers, helping provide the examples, and then ultimately helping ADL's regional offices respond to people who are feeling most victimized at that time. But also, Jessica and I were just talking about disinformation. There are a lot of people who will say, oh, did you hear about so-and-so anti-Semitic incident? And you're often helping us saying, well, actually, that's not true, or there's no evidence of that, which I feel like is an important part of your role too. Do you view that the same way? And, and how much do you feel like you find yourself debunking incidents of anti-Semitism in as a way it, because our credibility is so important? Yeah, there's a really careful balancing act that this work requires. We get a lot of firsthand reports of people who themselves have experienced anti-Semitism, and we want to include those reports in our work. But we've also seen instances where someone will either submit a fake report with some sort of ulterior motive. Other times people will submit something that they heard. You know, I heard my kids say that this happened to their classmate, for example. As much as we want to validate and shine a light on the experiences that people have in the Jewish community of anti-Semitism, we also want our data to be legit. We want it to be reliable. A lot of what I do is digging into the details of what happened, trying to get details from the person who experienced it or some sort of other context or evidence and making sure that what we're reporting out, we can stand behind. One last question. You do some difficult work. You do very difficult work. What do you do to take care of yourself? Like, what do you do to take a break? What's your go-to? I really love dogs and I don't have a dog. I can't have a dog because I live in New York City at the moment, but I will go on walks and I will look just for people walking their dogs. And sometimes if I'm lucky, somebody will see the look on my face and they'll slow down and they'll let me say hi to the dog, which will make my day. On a more serious note, I think the past couple of weeks, to be honest, a lot of my go-to ways to unwind have been less effective. This job and just living through this time has been really challenging. I went to synagogue for the first time in a while in, in New York City on Friday night. And I realized through that experience that I had kind of been trying to lean into the desensitization that comes with this job. Like I was trying not to feel what I was seeing. And when I went to services on Friday night and heard some moving speeches from rabbi, community members, I kind of broke down and it was a painful moment, but also a special moment and that I realized that I was actually feeling the pain of the moment. For a few days, I was like kind of shocked that I wasn't more upset. And so it was a moment that was humanizing for me to myself. I think that's beautifully said and so important and something that, you know, unfortunately comes with the work, but I'm so happy that you were able to find that outlet and find the space. Thank you Thank so you. much, Rachel. This is yeah, thanks, really Rachel. Interesting. It's likely, and I, you know this better than most, especially as Israel continues to defend itself, as there's more violence in the region, as this potentially expands, anti-Semitism and incidents will likely increase. So you're doing incredible work at a really important time. And I hope you walk by many dogs on the way to work. Thank you. Thank you both for having me on. And, and one thing I'll say is there's a lot of uncertainty in the future. But one thing I can be certain of is that I'm going to continue to track the anti-Semitism that is occurring to our community just as diligently as I ever have. 
hopefully that'll give people a sense of at least a validation of what they're seeing around them. That's awesome. Thank you, Rachel. So, Oren, if you needed further proof that white supremacists are irredeemably awful people, I'm happy to tell you that you've come to the right podcast. So in the wake of the Hamas terror attack against Israel, white supremacists were positively gleeful about the loss of life and the general depravity that we saw during the assaults. Group leaders across the country were online and on the ground cheering for, very ironically, Islamo-fascist terrorists who would kill them in an instant if given the chance. And they were cheering because Hamas had killed Israelis, because they had killed and brutalized Jews. And the enemy of your enemy and all that, I guess. And maybe this is just an indication that these groups' anti-Semitism runs even deeper than their racism. I don't know. Oren, what's your take on this? Why are we seeing so much of this? Yeah, I think this is another example of FOMO from extremists. Like, hey, man, we don't want to miss out on, you know, <laughs> like seeing this terrorist organization, like fulfill their fantasies. I mean, I'm, right. I mean, I'm being honest, like it's yeah. sick. And so they want to leverage it and say, that's great. And, you know, as long as there's dead Jewish bodies, then they're going to celebrate it. To me, it's the combo of everything that I think has been so challenging in sort of responding to this and what I think has affected many people, no matter what religion they follow, which is having over 300 rallies at the time of this recording, many of which have featured celebration, glorification, and justification of the murder of Jewish kids and kidnapping of Holocaust survivors and just the brutality, like legitimizing and glorifying it, which, yep. by the way, is what we see on white supremacist forums every single day. It's the language that they use to communicate. Seeing those two things online on the ground come together has been really maybe not surprising, but heavy. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think what's so ironic here is that we're seeing these groups on the ground, as you said, celebrating these non-white supremacist groups on the ground celebrating this attack. There seems to be no awareness whatsoever that Hamas would kill every single one of these people joyfully and without a moment's hesitation. Yeah. I don't understand why anyone would cast their lot in with people who committed the crimes that Hamas committed. It is truly incomprehensible to me. People with any conscience, any sense of morality. So how do you think that this will impact the white supremacist movement? And I know it's a little weird to talk about white supremacy in a time where Hamas and, and its apologists are really focused. But we don't have a luxury of ignoring any extremist movement at any time. You know, we've seen the increase in threats against Jews in these online spaces, increase of threats against Muslims in these online spaces that we know white supremacists are in. Would yeah. you be surprised if they tried to jump into the chaos and, you know, do something? No, absolutely not. No, no surprise at all. I mean, as you said, it's the issue of like this really dark and sick FOMO. There's this idea that I think white supremacists could probably ride this for a little while and sort of ride in the wake of it and just take advantage of it in that way. But they're going to want to come back into the center. They're going to want to be back in the spotlight. And we know that. And we know that they have a propensity for these horrific acts as well. And so I just think it's only a matter of time. I mean, I hate to sound fatalistic, but we've been doing this work long enough that we know that unfortunately, the next horrible thing is always just right around the corner. That's a very bleak note. I said last time we were in a very dangerous moment, and I think that has only been exponentially magnified in the last couple of weeks. We can only hope for the end to all of this violence and hate. 
we can hope and we can continue to do what we're doing, which is to expose those who think they can get away with legitimizing horrible violence to continue to track the movements to the best that we can and continue to try to be a voice of reason against hate. So hope is good. I like what we do even more. We are going to now hear my interview with Professor Jessica Stern. I actually am now an adjunct research professor, but I see that BU is still calling me research professor. So I'm going to call myself research professor. And I'm also a senior fellow at Harvard School of Public Health and at the Center for Naval Analysis. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. One of the reasons I was particularly excited about speaking with you is not only have you spent time in this field, but you're now teaching others to do this work in some way. And so how did you get into this line of work? What do you think I even mean when I say this line of work? What does that even mean to you? Well, there are lots of ways I could answer that question. I'm going to give you the professional answer first. I was writing my dissertation in the late 80s and 90s, and one of the country's foremost terrorism researchers, Brian Jenkins, who was at RAND, came to give a lecture at Kennedy School. And I was completely fascinated and immediately hooked. Mm. And I will say that I don't know whether that happened to you, Oren, but I have noticed that a lot of people who come into our field, which I would call terrorism studies, they get really obsessed. I was writing a dissertation on chemical weapons. I'd studied chemistry as an undergrad. And after hearing that talk, I expanded the dissertation to include terrorism with chemical weapons. Ash Carter was my dissertation advisor, and he already thought it was weird enough I was working on chemical weapons because this was a time when he and pretty much everybody in the national security field was working on state-to-state conflict and balance of power. And once I started working on terrorism, that was for him beyond the pale. I mean, Mm. I knew that he felt that way. But obviously, when he became Secretary of Defense, he had to work on terrorism and chemical weapons. And I had also written about Iraq. Those were the three issues I was most interested in and that he thought were most bizarre. And when he came back to Harvard from the Pentagon, we were on a panel together and he admitted in public that he thought it was strange. (laughs) And, you know, this young doctoral student was actually on to something. You know, obviously, ISIS was a big part of what he confronted when he became Secretary of Defense. And then I took a postdoctoral position at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is a nuclear weapons design lab. And I worked in intelligence. And there I was, I would say, forced (laughs) to expand into nuclear terrorism. And it was incredibly interesting. And I kept working on that issue when I went to work at the National Security Council and the Clinton administration. I was more or less doing what I was kind of trained to do, which was looking at the weapon systems that might be utilized and that at that time were very much at risk with the breakup of the Soviet Union, very vulnerable to terrorists. Just to make sure I get this straight, though, chemicals led you into terrorism studies. (laughs) Well, really, Brian Jenkins led me into terrorism studies. But yes, baby Jessica didn't say to herself at the age of five, I am going to deal with some of the worst of humanity. That was just something that you were introduced to because you were through your studies and meeting people like Mr. Jenkins. Right. 
Another way for me to answer the question is my dad's a Holocaust survivor. And I did a complete turnaround. I got really curious about the people Mm. as opposed to the weapons. I was not trained at all to talk to terrorists about their motivations. That was just a deep curiosity. And I think that my whole career, I've been trying to understand perpetrators of violence. That is really a combination of my dad, who never talked about um, Mm. the Nazis, actually, until he was in his 90s. But also, I was raped at gunpoint as a 15-year-old. And I think that also played a role. And Mm. the thing is, Oren, I'm telling you these very personal things, but I find that it's very common that people who go into terrorism studies or even to some extent national security affairs, but especially terrorism studies, have some kind of personal experience that Mm. makes them curious about perpetrators. And, you know, as a professor, I hear a lot about that. I don't know if you get this sense with some of the students that you're working with, but there's almost like feeling like you got to get through it, right? The stakes are too high. This work is too important. And, you know, even if it is making our lives miserable, we have to sort of push through, which I think is exactly the opposite of what we should be telling people. How do you sort of talk about the need to create that work-life balance or just time away from this terrible stuff? Yeah, it's a big part of my role as a teacher and a mentor. Just in the last few weeks, I had a student whose friend committed suicide, a childhood friend, and he needed a break, and I encouraged him to take the break. I've had another student who has talked to me a lot about whether she can handle this or whether it's better to go into another field. Honestly, I thought maybe it was better for her not to work in this field, but she chose to stay in the field. But I think she will have had the experience of having breaks. You know, there are many times when I suggested she have a break and she'll have had the experience of working on a team where we all do talk about the difficulty, especially now. So if I think of myself as training people to work for you, I know that they have to learn to work online. And it's not really possible to study tariffs the way I once did go talk to Al-Qaeda. <laughs> I mean, that's just not safe at all. It probably wasn't safe when I did it, but especially now, you just could never do that. And Americans could never do that. And yet, at the same time, there's an incredible source of information online. And I think that's potentially more dangerous psychologically because there's just so much coming at you. And if I think about training students to work for you, I want to help them become psychologically savvy, but also to be able to talk to computer scientists can be a challenge for non-computer scientists and vice versa. I love teaching (laughs) classes where the computer scientists and, and the international relations students are working together. But also I would encourage learning to code. You know, if I could have gotten away with it, I would impose that on my students. I would have liked to have a coding requirement at my school, but my dean didn't go along with that. You're a trailblazer in this field, right? The fact that you have had to do it differently. The technology was different. The expectation was different. There were probably very few women in this field at all at the time. Things are just very different now. But the sort of lessons of how to deal with this psychologically, I'm sure remain the same. And in fact, there's more of an opportunity now. People are talking about the need for people in this space to take care of themselves before they're able to do their work in ways that I have just not seen before. 
supporters of this work. You know, when we do sort of a report, hey, here's what we've done, here's what we've accomplished, they will ask, which I'm so happy about. They'll ask like, how are people doing? How are you dealing with the mental toll that this takes? And these are just not questions that were asked before. But I actually, I want to get back to something that you said, because I think it's a good sort of segue into another question that I have about feeling that a number of people who get into this field may have had some sort of trauma early on that may have turned them onto this the way you described, you know, your father being a Holocaust survivor, et cetera. And I also know that you worked on how children who have dealt with trauma also may become extremists. And so are you seeing parallels? And I hate to make that, I'm not trying to make that comparison, but for those who are fighting hate and extremism and may have that background, those who are perpetrating it and may have that background, I mean, based on what you've studied, how do you make sense out of that? If you think about who's going to be a really good police officer, it's someone who can think like a criminal. I think those of us who study terrorism, the best analyst, I don't know whether I'd say the best scholar, but the best analyst is someone who really learns how to think like a terrorist. Is Mm -hmm. that because the analyst has also experienced trauma? I'm not sure I'm ready to go that far, but you're noticing something interesting. Certainly, learning how to think like a terrorist is absolutely critical. You have to be able to find the terrorist inside you. I mean, a psychologist once said that to me, that the first time I went, my first terrorists were the kind of people you study, neo-Nazis. Those are the first terrorists that I talked to. The psychologist said to me, you need to essentially become the neo-Nazi in order to fully understand that. How could I do that? You know, I'm a child of a survivor. It just seemed like an absolutely impossible task to me. It doesn't feel that way anymore. I am able to locate that hate in myself. Hmm. I'm not going to act on that hate, but we all have hate. It's not necessarily for a group, but you can find rage and hate inside yourself. When I was that young, I was a good girl. I didn't think I had any of that. (laughs) So (laughs) over time, I found it. Yeah, you look hard enough. All of us can find a little bit of that (laughs) inside or, or, or a lot of it. I guess I don't know how to ask this question, but how does somebody become, you know, a terrorist? Are these questions being asked now more than they were when you first started looking at this? Oh, yeah. Why is that? Is it just because the issues become so much worse or is it just people are legitimately trying to find solutions? I mean, what do you think the difference is? If you could take care of the problem from the perspective of the Pentagon with a drone, it doesn't really matter why the person becomes a terrorist. I mean, I was really interested personally in that question, but that wasn't something the government was especially interested in. The kind of work I was doing when I first started out on this path was not that expensive. Now the work is very expensive because we're looking at a lot of data. So the fact that the government is interested in this is important. You cannot take care of a domestic terrorism problem with drones. There's no military response to a domestic terrorism problem. As we have more domestic terrorism, it suddenly becomes really important to consider a public health approach. And what we're funded to look at now is helping probation officers prevent recidivism. Is the approach to terrorists who come out of prison, does it need to be different from the approach to others? I think the answer is probably it's not that different, but probation officers are scared. They are really scared dealing with terrorists coming out of prison. 
Right, because presumably uh, somebody who's like robbed somebody who gets out of prison, you're afraid he's going to go rob somebody again. But if it's somebody who's committed a terrorist act, I mean, if they're going to do the same thing, it's just a much more, I imagine, concerning issue. Yeah, because it could be a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, the people who right. come out of prison are generally convicted of terrorism-related crimes. Perhaps they were supporting a terrorist movement or were involved in a terrorist act in some way. You don't see a lot of people coming out of prison who have already killed a lot of people. But yeah, yeah it's yeah. scary for that reason. We're also looking at what kind of therapies are being used with this population and which therapies might be important. So one thing we found is something called moral recognition therapy is of interest. Another therapy is dialectical behavioral therapy. These are foreign languages to me. Yeah. What do those mean? Moral recognition therapy. Somebody told me that it started out as a typo. The word recognition was a typo. (laughs) It's teaching people the impact of their choices, helping them understand the morality. And dialectical behavioral therapy was developed to help people respond to extreme emotion in a way that they don't hurt themselves. And it seems to be useful to help people respond to extreme emotion in a way they won't hurt others as well. So that's something we're trying to figure out whether probation officers could use components of dialectical behavioral therapy in their encounters with extremists coming out of prison. So the government hasn't proposed to us, can you please tell us why people become terrorists? They have much more specific questions related to policy. So from chemistry to psychology, this field has taken you on quite a trip, right? You've sort of dealt with it in so many different ways. I've obviously always admired your work. It's been a pleasure being on some calls with you and meeting you a couple of times. When you look at sort of the focus on extremism and terrorism in this country over the past however many years, it has gone from one thing to another, international, domestic, and you've just sort of been there as an important voice throughout the changes. And just thank you for what you've done to contribute to our understanding of this issue and to honestly prepare the next generation of folks who, let's just face it, are going to have to be dealing with it well after us because it ain't going away anytime soon. So just thank you for all that you've done. Thank you. And continue to do. (laughs) Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. And obviously, I'm a big fan. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for listening. And please, if you have questions, comments, irate rants, (laughs) uh, key lime pie recipes, please, please send them to us. We love to get your emails. And you can reach us at extremely at adl.org. So please do get in touch. Ask us questions you have about the world of extremism, about our work. And now let's close out, Oren, with our life rafts for the week. This is going to be tough. This has been a really difficult couple of weeks. So I am really excited to hear what you could possibly come up with. Well, I had sort of a life raft and I use an asterisk after that in place before the horrors of October 7th. I briefly lost my sanity and decided to foster two puppies on top of the dog that we already have. So I have spent the last two weeks not only working at this very demanding job, but also managing two 10-week-old puppies. So now I know I can get through a lot of things. They really have given me a lot of love and joy and moments of solace. And so I've been very grateful to them when they're not like ripping things apart and or eating my shoes. 
so fostering means you're gonna train them to then be they, they need to be adopted yeah <laughs> got it got it they're, they're lovely if anyone's interested please email us okay there we go good use of the email my life raft i'm gonna go with key lime pie so here's the deal that was last time also you know yeah some people will talk to you about cool lime pie what yeah it's different does it have cool whip in it not sure because it's called cool lime pie you know what people should investigate and write in to extremely at adl.org and let us know if i'm making this up or not but there are other my point is lesser versions or pies that are adjacent to the key lime pie but for me the pie itself the whole thing this week that's my life raft not the adjacent versions but the og key lime pie the og key lime pie you know it sounds like nothing but it can be everything <laughs>